Hello, everybody, and welcome to the History Voyager. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very, very much for listening to mine. This is a podcast with a man named Jeremy Carberry, who is a river guide at the uh, Channel Islands National Park, which is a national park outside of Los Angeles. Actually, it's off the coast of Los Angeles. What we allude to a couple of times in this podcast is the fact that we tried to record this podcast several times, and we finally got the job done. It was a very, very fascinating podcast. It was a podcast I deeply, deeply enjoyed um, recording. What I wanted to say was that I want all of you to wear a mask, and I want those of you who can, those of you who are able to do it, uh, please, please go get a um, your vaccine if you haven't done that already. Um, I understand there's religious exemptions, and there's also, you know, compromised health and, and that sort of thing. But um, please, you know, everybody is somebody special uh, to someone. Everybody is the center of somebody's universe. And please don't deprive that person of the center of their universe. Um, anyway, I had a really enjoyable time recording this, even though this podcast was literally recorded 28 days ago, or 29 days ago, I think. But I had a great time doing it, and I hope you have a good time listening to it. All right. Um, like I say, all the time, I'm having a great day, and I hope you are too. And I'll see you on the flip side. This time I really mean that. There's something I'm going to say on the flip side. All right. Bye. All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is Benjamin Kitchings of the History Voyager. I'm here with Jeremy Carberry who is a, you're a guide on the Channel Islands, is that right? That's correct, yeah. Okay, and you also do a podcast about um, uh, teeth animals attacking called Teeth Pod, right? Yeah, the Teeth Pod, yep, exactly. Okay, all right, okay. Now, can you tell me some, tell me about the Channel Islands, National Chan- Park, because I've never Islands. heard of it. Yeah, most people haven't actually. You know, I live, I live in Los Angeles, or I'm, I'm based out of Los Angeles at least. And I would say most of the people that I tell in Los Angeles that I work in the Channel Islands, they say the what. And if you're in LA and you look out in the ocean, you'll see there's these mountains out in the ocean, <laughs> just isolated mountains. You know. You can see them from L.A. And for some reason, people that live in L.A., they never look out there and they never see them or think, what is that? Which I used to get frustrated by, but now I think it's kind of cool because because of this, the Channel Islands are kind of this hidden gem. And uh, even though they're they're right off the coast of the you know second biggest city in the United States, they're still kind of a unknown hidden gem. Okay, and um, what, okay, so earlier, 
Okay, I don't know how to do this segue organically. So earlier, ladies and gentlemen, we were talking about some of the, uh, I guess, the earliest human remains on the Channel Islands. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the earliest human remains in North America, or in, in all of the Americas, North and South, were found on Santa Rosa Island, which is off the coast of Southern Central California. And uh, these remains are, are estimated to be between thirteen and 14,000 years old, which is, which is really fascinating. And what's really fascinating is about it is um, well, why are the oldest human remains on an island and not on the main, main continent? And back then, there were even more big predators <laughs> and dangerous animals on mainland California, saber-toothed tigers, dire wolves. I don't know exactly how the timeline with all this, but there was a lot of uh, big uh, mm. predators that woolly mammoths, et cetera. And yeah, so on woolly mammoths. They were actually woolly mammoths on the islands as well. <laughs> they swam over there. Oh my God. That'd be yeah. so crazy. Yeah. But um, so yeah, the, the, the leading theory, the one that I believe is that um, humans migrated from Asia in boats they followed, they followed the coastline from what is now Russia to what is now Alaska, and then they followed it down through what is now Canada, all the way down, um, following what's called the Kelp Highway. And okay, so, th all right, so when we recorded this earlier, all right, that was the part I was a little light on. So they, they followed, they took this canoe, or they took whatever, and they followed the coastline of the supercontinent and ended up on the Channel Islands. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. that's the leading okay. theory. Yeah, and um, yeah, prob probably some kind of canoe. You know, some kind of really large outrigger canoe is what they traveled in. Uh, we don't really know, but uh, it's, it's that would be fascinating if you could actually find the canoe. Like that would be so interesting. Yeah, chances are it was made out of wood, and wood decomposes. So it's hard. It's hard to know. I, uh, side sort of related. I, I worked in Maui, um, a couple winters ago and the, uh, the people that settled Maui or the people that settled Hawaii, um, it's pretty widely agreed that they came from the, uh, the Pacific Southwest. So the, uh, or the Pacific Southeast, I guess is what it would be like the, the, um, the Philippines and, uh, and that those, those mm -hmm. islands over there in uh, Southeast Asia. So it's interesting. They don't even know what kind of boats they use. They have, they have ideas. There's like, you know, paintings of them or whatever, but they don't, but they don't really know. And maybe in the last, you know, 70, 60, 70 years, they've recreated some of these uh, boats and actually traveled, you know, recreated those those journeys that the original settlers took. And it's, it's really, really amazing how, how much the early travelers, you know, we're talking, we're talking thousands of years ago, even how, how much they understood their, the detailed scientific knowledge they had of the ocean currents, the winds, and the, the stars and the planets, the, the understanding that they have of those things are baffle scientists today. Yeah, I mean, when you get into deep time, 
um, what I guess what they call deep the deep past or deep time. That just I mean it just it's so fascinating, and some of that stuff is. I mean, when you really look at it and you really analyze it, it's just really bizarre. Like, you know, like you're saying, like with the canoes going to the Channel Islands or, you know, I, I was talking to somebody today and we mentioned um, Roman boats found off the coast of Brazil. Yeah. You know, and, <laughs> and maybe, you know, maybe those boats, those, maybe they got there from a shipwreck or maybe they got there from currents or however but still it was there yeah and you know unanswered questions basically yeah it's there's there's a lot of evidence that the stories that we heard in history class growing up in elementary school about columbus discovering north america and you know different different white people discovering places um way 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 before christopher columbus discovered so-called things it was common knowledge you know amongst oh the, the, the vikings oh, that's traveled all the time to north america they knew they knew the routes they knew it was there i mean that's even true about i mean that's a thing in this country that's a thing in, in modern day that, that we don't really understand is that you know not everybody um so in the past um, not everybody knew everything. Like, not everybody, you know, you could have somebody like a doctor in in the court of Suleiman the Magnificent that was working on some pretty amazing medical breakthroughs or whatever. Yeah. But did the average person know? No. The average person had no concept of that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They didn't even know what was possible. They didn't even know what other people were doing in other parts of the world. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So um. We definitely know with the uh, you know the uh, the people in Hawaii that they were doing extremely technically uh, proficient, uh, very very long multi week journeys through in kayak or canoes. You know, outrigger canoes. We know that they were doing this, so it's it makes sense that people in Asia were doing it. They they all they had to do was follow the coastline. You know. Yeah, I mean, wow. That's just amazing to think about. Yeah, so it's um so talk to me I'm sorry. Talk yeah. to me about um I guess like there's a phenomenon. I guess the Instagrammable vacation. And we were talking before about people dying in national parks. Um basically from falling or from provoking animals in ways that we wouldn't have done 30 years ago or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the Instagram effect on uh, the outdoors and the people that go in the outdoors. <laughs> yeah. The, it's, it's a very real thing. I've seen it firsthand. Um, you have people <laughs> that are trying to get a selfie with a beautiful cliff, whether it's the grand Canyon or anywhere and they're they're looking at their phone they're walking backwards they they lose their footing and they fall off the cliff and die you've seen that so you 
You, oh, you no, haven't I, seen I haven't I haven't seen that happen personally. I've seen people get too close to cliffs where they almost die, but um, I haven't seen yeah. somebody actually fall off a cliff and die. But I've seen I've seen the effects of Instagram on on people and uh, on our natural, you know, resources and animals. Right. I mean, I guess like, um, I mean that's just so crazy. But so like, when you think about, I mean the 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 Brea tar pits with Instagram, man, that that would be. Walking too close to the tar. Walking too close. To the tar. <laughs> yeah, you know what they? I think they they kind of got a, a a head start on that. They put up a big fence around the the biggest uh, pond or tar pit, you know, at, at La Brea tar pits. But there's still there's still smaller um, tar <laughs> outcroppings or whatever you'd call it. You know where it's boiling up out of the thing, and people people, especially kids, they're always getting into that, getting tar all over themselves. I didn't. I mean, I've only been to the La Brea tar pits once, um, quite a few years ago at this point. But um, when I went, I mean, the thing I remember was it was I was literally one of the only people there who wasn't school age who thought it was amazing. <laughs> like literally, like I'm walking around with people and they're looking bored, and I'm like, dude. This looks amazing. Yeah, you went through Why the museum as well. Oh, I have known about the Labrea Tarpon since I was like six. Yeah. Oh no, I went everywhere. <laughs> I went. <laughs> I went. I was I was on vacation with my with my family, and I was I was like I just announced we're going to the Labrea Tarpons. Nice. <laughs> we're going. <laughs> That's not that's not one of the most popular Los Angeles tourist destinations, actually. But it's such a unique place. You, you, it should be. Well, you're talking to somebody who didn't know who the Kardashians were until I essentially had to know. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I watch movies. I mean, you know, whatever. Blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. T-Rexes are way cooler than Kim Kardashian. I agree. Yeah. The the <laughs> for anybody who doesn't know, the the La Brea tar pits are right in the center of Los Angeles. And it is this it kind of looks like a pond when you see it at first, like a big pond. And then when you look at it a little closer, there's like this 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 greasy, oily film over it, and it's actually bubbling looks like something out of prehistoric times because it is out of prehistoric times and it's it's existed there for thousands and thousands of years and what has happened is uh animals will go to the to the the tar pit or the pond you know it's it's fresh water but then there's all this tar all around it and animals like deer or whatever will will go to drink the water and they get stuck in the tar and then you have other animals like like mountain lions, saber-toothed tigers, dire wolves will go and they'll notice that this prey is stuck in the tar and then they go and attack the prey and sometimes maybe they get it out of the tar and eat it and sometimes the predators themselves get stuck in the tar and tar is a preservative. So what happens is they just kind of get sucked down in there and they their remains are just like preserved. So uh, these... Uh, I guess would it be 
what, what's the people that dig out stuff out of the ground? I can't. I don't uh, know. Paleontologist, archaeologist. Yeah, uh, paleontologist. They dig them out and they have all these amazing remains, like intact remains of um, ground sloths, woolly mammoths, dire wolves. There's a wall at the Tar Pits Museum. And it's like, it has to be a couple hundred direwolf skulls. And it's like backlit with this like eerie orange light. And if you ever want to see a wall of, you know, over a hundred direwolf skulls, that's probably the only place in the world to go to see that. It's really, really incredible. Okay. For the, okay. We, we've said direwolf a lot in this podcast. And there's probably a lot of people, including me, a few months ago that would have thought a direwolf was only something on Game of Thrones. <laughs> so why don't you explain to my listeners what a direwolf is? Yeah, sure. A dire, a dire wolf, uh, kind of uh, the translation is terrible wolf. And okay. it, it, it's, it's a now extinct species of wolf. And it looks kind of like a werewolf. <laughs> like it's, it's, it looks mythical. Like it doesn't even exist. Um, aren't like, they absolutely huge? Like for real, aren't they huge or something? Um, they got, yeah, they got pretty big. Um, I don't know. I don't know exactly how big, but the, the shape of them, they had like a lot of upper body mass, whereas like modern day wolves are more spread out. Um, but yeah, like the the, mm. the artist recreations of what they would have looked like, you would you would see that and say, oh, that's something out of a you know a fantasy novel. It doesn't actually exist. Well, like I mean, North America was full of what they call megafauna. Yep. Um, before the I guess before the Younger Dryas, um, which I guess again this is me knowing about deep time. Um, the Younger Dryas was an ice age. That started about ten or eleven thousand years ago. Um, or did it start? I'm trying to remember. Did it start ten or eleven thousand years ago? Or, or it's called the what? What is it called again? The Younger Dryas. Younger Dryas. Let me let me look. It was up. the most recent ice age. Okay. Essentially. Yeah, around around uh, thirteen thousand to twelve thousand years ago. Roughly. Yeah, thirteen to eleven. Somewhere in there, blah blah. Yeah. What's a thousand years between friends? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, yeah, and, and humans were alive back then. Oh, for sure. Yep. And that you can find, like, I mean, I've seen they're doing some amazing research into the younger Dryas now. That's I, I. I'm not. A, I'm not in a camp, right? I'm. I'm not pro did it happen this way or that way? But some of the new research into it is just so fascinating. Um, like they think a meteor hit, I think Greenland that caused it. Um, it's just amazing. Like, yeah. You know, what's interesting too. Like the, we know that the earth goes through these natural warming and cooling periods, you know? Um, right that kind of just happens on its own, even without a meteor or pollution or whatever else, you know, making it go faster or slower. Yeah. Yeah. There's, we, we know that just kind of naturally the earth is heating and cooling like over, over thousands of years. And we don't I mean, have yeah. enough, 
we don't really have enough solid evidence to really be able to chart it or predict it necessarily. We're still figuring all that out. I mean, it is interesting to me, like, when you look at, I mean, some of the evidence is in plain sight. Like, the there's a famous picture of, of a hockey game, an ice hockey game, that took place on the Thames in London. Yeah, yeah. Where the Thames froze solid. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's actually, I mean, recorded in history, like... One of the first ice hockey games that took place on the Thames in London. Um, but then again, you also have like, you know, uh, people like in hockey, ice hockey today, modern day. They're they're talking about how they had to change up Edmonton's ice rink because of climate change or whatever. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. Things are definitely in a warming phase right now. <laughs> right. Yeah, but um, yeah, you know, like, no. A little yeah. bit off topic. You know, you know the story about like Mary Shelley era in the in the eighteen hundreds with the uh, the oh. overcast. Have you heard about that? Okay, I know what you're talking about. Refresh my listen. Refresh my. Uh, this is memory. this is just going off of uh, the top of my head, drunk history style. <laughs> but uh, it, it, there was a, I think it was an earth or a uh, volcano that put so much soot in the air that it was uh there was just like constant overcast and because of that everything got really cold and there was like a giant die-off and this was you know what like 200 years ago maybe it w- wasn't that long ago you know and no. uh, yeah so it, it's so much so that like apparently there wasn't much to do so mary shelley wrote then she had a, like a competition with her friends who could write the scariest story. Horror wasn't even a genre, you know. And then she wrote. They were on vacation, as I remember, and they came up with, or she came up with Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. That's badass. I mean, I but, mean even I mean, even Mount Saint Helens, you know that. Uh, like I wasn't alive during that, but my mom lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And she said there was, they could see the ash in the air in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, thousands of miles from Washington. When that, when that volcano went off, you know, what's you know, what's crazy. You made me remember something. This is the, I guess the second time today you made me remember something from my past. (laughs) History. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I remember, like, I don't think I was alive for Mount St. Helens either. But I was close enough to it that you could be an adult and it'd be like, it was more recent than 9-11 is today. Hmm. Right? Yeah. Like, it It was more recent than the 2008 crash is to today, Right. So you could be an adult and you remembered it and you would tell stories about it. And my mother or somebody I knew met somebody who lost people in the Mount St. Helens thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Apparently it was 1980. Yeah. Yeah, Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, right. it's, it's it's interesting that when you have a when you have a direct connection or a, a, a secondhand connection. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, we it doesn't take much of a volcano that can shoot a bunch of that ash into the atmosphere, and then the sun's not reaching. You know, the sun's not reaching uh, Earth the way it usually would. Everything cools down significantly. Yeah. I mean, this whole, it's crazy, this, this marble that we live on, <laughs> all, all the, yeah. all the nuttiness, I mean, like I talked to, I mean, I've, everybody I've talked to out where you live, uh, out in your neck of the woods, all up and down the Pacific coast, you all talk about the, fir- the what you refer to as a forest fire, right? Mm-hmm. Now... In the east, where I live, I mean, my brain can't even wrap around something that big. A fire of that size. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, my mind, I can't even, like, what? A whole, basically, a, a, a area the size of Vermont is on fire. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's trippy. Yeah, you guys you guys get a lot more rain than we do. So yeah, the, things stay more wet, less prone to going up. <laughs> so, like, do you have like a fire story you want to share with the internet or, or what? Ah, uh, sure. Yeah, the, the I I grew up in Ohio, and I moved out to Los Angeles, Southern California area. 15, 16 years ago. I don't even remember how long ago. But the first time I saw a fire, you know, a forest fire, whatever you want to call it, I was, on a, I was on a Los Angeles city bus. And I was looking out the window, and Griffith Park, which is right in the center of Los Angeles, is just on fire. Not, not like clouds of smoke, like literally flames. You could see flames, like maybe it was a mile or two away from the highway, but you could see the actual flames a couple stories high just just ravaging this park right in the middle of Los Angeles and the park's kind of on a mountain and i was looking around at the other people on the bus like terrified like like our whole city's burning down you know and the other people on the bus were just looking like it was another tuesday like nothing was out of out of the ordinary and i was like pointing like it's burning and they're just like yeah that's what happens Jesus, I mean, <laughs> I I know, like you just said, you're from Ohio, but I wonder, like, if an old time Angelino came on my podcast, like, would there be like a before and after with the fires? You know what I'm saying? Like, would there be, like, I remember when the fires weren't that bad. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know. There's, there's, yeah. uh, there, they, they burn naturally. So every, yeah, whether it's every year, or every other year, there's a natural cycle. Um, when trees die, they dry out really fast. You know, California has a very dry climate. They dry out really fast after they die. Once you have a lot of dead trees laying around, it doesn't take much for them all to go up. You know, we get, we get some really strong winds, especially in the fall time, called Santa Ana winds, and uh, 
<clears throat> those winds, they, they, if a spark gets going, the firemen and the fire helicopters, they can't control it fast enough, but it's also a natural thing. You know, that's, that's how the, uh, that's how nature gets rid of all those, those dead, those dead trees and bushes and shrub. And then it yeah. burns it down into ash and then the ash is fertilizer for new things to grow. You know, it's a, it's a natural cycle. I mean, but the difference is like, you have a natural cycle. So, okay. One of the times we recorded a podcast or tried to, <laughs> um, you you broke it down. Like, you actually said, here's the deal. Like, you have these houses and you're doing things to protect the houses, but you're not. But in protecting the houses, you're not thinking about the bigger fires. Yeah. Yeah. And let me say, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on this. Um, I do spend some time in the woods, but that's not really the quality. doesn't really qualify me as a as a scientist. Um, but yeah, in my, you know, reading and experience, the uh, humans definitely have a have a role in disrupting that natural cycle where the where the the mount like an area might burn down every three or four years, right? Or may, maybe longer, right? It has a it has a natural burn cycle. Everything burns down and then everything grows back. Well, whenever humans start building and expanding the suburbs out into the mountains and out into the forests, um, whenever there, whenever a burn starts, the 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 helicopters come and they drop water to protect the area around the houses. Well, then what happens is those dead trees that would usually be burned up, they just accumulate more. And there's some, you know, sometimes people have them removed or whatever. But when you're talking about, you know, miles and miles of forest, you're not going to have all of the dead trees removed. So then those, then those, then they, then that just becomes more susceptible to fire. So then whenever it does catch, it's going to burn stronger and faster than if it had just been happening naturally on its natural cycle. Wow. That really sounds like a, Hmm. sounds like a problem. Yeah. And, and you know what? There's not really a, there doesn't really seem to be a simple solution to it either. You know, it's like, are you just going to let the fire burn and burn up people's houses and maybe people in the houses if they don't have enough time to get out of it? You know, it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's a, it's a tricky tricky situation it's it re, it also reminds me of uh new orleans i don't know how much you know about new orleans and the floods that happened there um but pretty much in between the ocean and the land there's miles and miles of swamp that's how that's how it naturally works so then whenever there's a whenever the oceans you know whenever a big wave comes in from the ocean or whenever the oceans rise the swamp absorbs that extra water so that it doesn't get to the dry land. Well, New Orleans, pretty much they, they built a city where the swamp was right on the ocean. So now there's dry land and ocean. There's no buffer zone. Well, whenever the, whenever a big wave comes through or a big storm comes through, there's no swamp to absorb that extra water. And all that water goes right into the city. Actually, I just had a podcast guest, and and he said that he's an engineer. And actually, what he said was was that New Orleans is actually like the worst 
Like whoever built New Orleans was crazy. <laughs> the crazy French. <laughs> they they put it in the low part of. They put yeah. it inside a bowl. Basically, was what they did. Yep. Yep. That sounds crazy. Hmm. 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 Yeah, it's 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 a recipe for disaster, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean. I mean that's I mean that's kind of like with LA though too because like you have this earthquake like the way the San Andreas is right eventually it's going to snap <laughs> yeah you know we're due yeah be it tomorrow or a thousand years from now <laughs> yeah for sure it's gonna snap yeah I haven't there hasn't been a big one since I've been here I've felt a couple smaller ones but. Yeah, and same same with uh, same with Yellowstone. You know that the the all that all that hot lava under there that creates all the geysers and the, all that's that's due to explode as well, explode into a humongous volcano. We don't know when it's gonna happen. Yeah, that's that's a that's you watching the Nat Geo channel right there. That's that's a I know I've seen that episode or that thing. I know I have. Yeah. The the Super Volcano. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 Tight. humans humans and nature, you know, it's uh uh <laughs> we're we're kind of doomed. <laughs> well, okay, so let's uh, just for a second, let's let's go back to your teeth the 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 animal attacking teeth podcast. Um do a lot of animal attacks do they tend to happen? Um, in more, first of all, where do animal attacks tend to happen? So most, most animal attacks happen, uh, like I said, in, in the home <laughs> domestically, right. you know, whether it's most of them are dogs, cats are number two, and then things like horses and cows and other, you know, farm animals and stuff. Um, uh, wow. So we're not talking foxes or. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but lions and bears and sharks are are way 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 down on the list as far as animal attacks go. Okay. So, all right. But as far as like does the home have to be So my question basically was does the home have to be like uh more in an exurban area or more in a suburban area or I guess Oh no. I, I mean I yeah. mean most most animal attacks are 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 dogs domesticated dogs you know so whether you're in a city or suburbs if you have a pet dog or your neighbor has a pet dog that's that's the most common animal attack unfortunately is domesticated and then cats and it goes down the list um the the animals that make headlines like you know bears lions and sharks they're actually extremely uncommon that that they attack people but that's what most people are afraid of yeah yeah and my my podcast the teeth interviews people that have survived wild animal attacks and it's amazing ben how many people don't know the difference between a wild animal and a domesticated animal (laughs) i can't i can't get over it like i'm constantly constantly having to explain to people well well if it's a if it's a dog and it lives in a house that's not a wild animal that's a domesticated animal people don't really seem to understand it though that is interesting Mm -hmm. 
maybe, maybe that's just a very small sample size of the people that I've interacted with, but no, like that's wow. Like, okay, this afternoon I was on a podcast with a fella and we talked about, it was his show, but we talked about how, um, so there's a thing going on that with, with, with brains, with human brains, right? And what it is, is a certain segment of the population of the planet is getting smarter, right? Yeah. Okay. But with that, there's another segment of the population that's either literally getting dumber or they're just not as smart by comparison and it's starting to show. Oh, you yeah. know what I'm saying? I could believe that for sure. And that's what's God, that's amazing. Oh. I mean, just look at look at these people that are getting attacked by animals, you know, you, constantly and people are getting gored to death by bison and buffalo. These things are the size of a SUV. You know, they have these giant horns on the front of their head. And for some reason, people think they could just walk right up to them and take a picture with them. It's so stupid. Like the definition but like of you, stupidity. Okay. So you're literally on your podcast trying to explain to people no, like the the dog is a is a domesticated animal, and like the shark is a wild animal. And <laughs> I mean, not on the podcast, but you know, people will say, I'll say, you know, I'll say, I'm, I'm I'm interviewing people that have survived being attacked by a wild animal, and then somebody will say, uh, one time a rooster pecked my leg. Does that count? And <laughs> maybe they're joking. I don't know, but <laughs> it's like, well, a rooster's not wild, and then you know. A, a, a dog biting you is not wild. And if I had a lot of those, I don't get into that on the podcast itself, but conversations right. surrounding the podcast. Yeah. Definitely. One of the most, you know, one of the most interesting times on my podcast is. So when we download this episode, there's always a wait. So we talk while it downloads. Yeah. And some of the most interesting things I've learned, I've learned while it's downloading. <laughs> when you're not recording. <laughs> when yeah, and you'd be amazed. You would be amazed at what people will tell you when they know you're not recording. Oh, I can believe it. Yeah. <laughs> it I'm is just, kind I'm of just shocking. Always, I'm just always recording, even when the podcast is quote unquote done. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but <laughs> I'm always recording. I'll, I'll ask them if I can use it. You know. But I learned that in the recording. I, you know, I've worked in recording studios as an audio engineer, and uh, you know, I'm working with a composer. And a lot of times, I I know from certain composers that they just always want to be recording no matter what. But then other ones will tell you, you know, like even though they're just warming up and they don't think that they're recording, like make sure that the tape is rolling because believe it or not, a lot of the best things happen when people are just warming up, tuning their instrument. They're you know they're just goofing around playing with each other and then that becomes the main theme of the movie they weren't even they didn't even think that they were writing a song or recording <laughs> and they're just you know just goofing around just being natural so you used to work um with in the movies basically this was in the movies re- re- yeah music recording studio so i'll work with a composer and then you know they'll hire musicians to come into the studio 
and and you know write music for the film or, wow. or tv show music video game whatever orchestral music for call of duty <laughs> not not or I, I haven't done very much orchestral maybe like string quartet stuff but uh, mostly yeah. you know more modern instruments wow you sound like you've had quite the quite the life um <laughs> why didn't you stick with the recording engineer kind of stuff i still do some i still do some stuff um it work kind of got slow maybe five or six years ago uh, a couple a couple of the composers i worked with either retired or moved out of the country and um i you know I was still working a little bit but it wasn't really like enough so then i got into i figured out well i really like to be out on the ocean i like to snorkel and kayak and i need to figure out a way how to <laughs> make that pay my bills <laughs> so then i applied at a bunch of you know kayaking guide jobs and somehow huh. somehow figured out how to make that make me some money too so you okay so when you came out to la did you come out as a recording engineer type person or yeah definitely definitely as a recording engineer type person but i'm also you know an outdoor enthusiast you know and i oh. knew that i knew that the mountains and the ocean on the west coast were unexplored territory for me so it was kind of both, you know. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Huh. Yeah, there so I can tell you this story too. There there's a uh, there's a guy who invented the uh, recording console. Do you know this story? Um Thomas Edison? No, he's a uh, he's okay. So there's a guy that invented the recording console for for in in recording studios right um he he also was a big deal in helping to build the atomic bomb huh and right <laughs> and he basically he went awol <laughs> after he built the bomb like after he did all this and the the army or whatever it was like whatever service branch it was um basically quietly um, pardoned him, essentially. Because they were like, look, he's done his bit, okay? We're not going to go arrest this guy. Yeah, huh. he's, done his, he's done his bit. But he went to... I forget if it was Alabama or wherever he went. And he basically used a lot of the same technology to invent... The recording console, which is what they used to record music until computers, right? And the way he designed it was how they built it right up until they started using computers. And like a huge chunk of that console was not used until the 70s and 80s. Hmm. And I mean... Yeah, I'm not. I'm not familiar with that. It, it, when you say console, usually a console is not the part that actually does the recording. The tape does the recording. So, I'm trying to. Well, he he built the desk basically. He built the. Like I can see that I can see it in my mind. <laughs> yeah. There's three. It's got three sections to it. Okay. You know, 
And yeah, like a full. I, I, do, I do know that a lot of the technology that is used to this day for recording was actually developed as as weapons of war. Um, they got compressors. There's a it's like a Fairchild compressor. Um, a lot of the microphones, the German microphones, and and uh, this mm-hmm. audio gear was were, were actually they were developed as a way to record you know like a, a group of people talking and then they could compress it down so they could hear like individual voices instead of the entire group and this was like back in the what 50s and 60s well he technology. he he left the army uh in like 45 or oh okay yeah he, <laughs> but he he went to Alabama or Mississippi or somewhere and he started recording country and blues. And for eons, you could go to the Country Hall of Fame and you could see the his console, like his recording desk. Le- not Les Paul. Is that what you're talking no. about? No. No. Not Les Paul. No, but he used to work for Sun Records. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, they were definitely the... Yeah. One of the leading... leading technology or whatever no yeah totally and then he eventually migrated up to new york city and recorded i think he recorded Jimi hendrix and some other people but uh i love telling that story (laughs) yeah you know huh it's a it's amazing like to think like this guy okay first of all he started he built the nuclear bomb but then he also essentially created the recording industry that gave us rock and roll and recorded country and the blues. I mean, think about, you know, wow. <laughs> yeah, I need to look into that. I don't, I haven't heard of yeah. that. There, I'm, I'm sure it's a, you know, a combination of that guy and then the other people that were innovating new technologies, you know. I'm sure, I'm sure it is. But, yeah. But they used his desk for, I mean, they used his thing that he designed for eons, oh, like cool. literally for eons. Yeah, even when something is technically like out of out of date or not, you know, in fad anymore, it's it's interesting. You give it a decade or two, and then it comes back in, and, and then musicians want to use it again. You know, yeah, well, <laughs> it's kind of that's the that's the thing, and that, it wasn't out of date until yeah. it was. Like but it wasn't. Even, but what I'm saying is even at, even after, you know, digital came back in and then it was out of date, you know, you give it a decade or two and then musicians are like, oh, you know what? The analog has certain characteristics that we can't get from the digital. And then they want to go back to it, at least some, you know. Well, it's, I think was it, is it Dave Grohl that I think like Dave Grohl bought a tape factory. Yeah, sound or, the sound factory, maybe. Well, he bought that debt. I mean, there's that documentary, right? Where he. Oh yeah, yeah. But he also, I think, somebody, somebody you would not think of, bought a factory that makes tape, yeah. recording tape. Yeah, I know. I know Wilco has has uh, contributed a lot to keeping tape, like analog tape production, alive. Yeah. God. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. For I mean, I've been. I've. <laughs> I'm. I'm 37. I'm not that old. But I'm actually old enough that when I started working in recording studios, 
um, there were companies making making 24 track tape, you know, which is the standard and yeah. and whatnot. And you'd go to a, you know, company and buy, it was like, you know, almost $200. You buy a big 24 inch track tape and maybe you'd get half an hour of music on that. And then, yeah. then, you know, as digital became more and more popular, they, that company went out of business and then, and then I've also seen it come back <laughs> into business, you know, where now they're doing it again. There's actually a couple companies that actually make, make analog tape now on a smaller scale, but yeah, there's still, well, I mean, you know, think about, I mean, there was that guy, I can't remember his name. Um, there was that guy that, that was making real black and white movies. Like, real black and white not like black and white movies where you take it where you film it in color and then digitally make it black and white yeah but like he was making real black and white movies like in modern era or in modern yeah but they're like real arty <laughs> yeah with with probably like 16 millimeter film or something i think jim jarmuch did that oh yeah yeah he's done it but somebody else did too yeah yeah I, I Jesus, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 interesting. Like even with the the tape simulators and every all the digital technology, there's something yeah. about you know initially capturing the image onto film or the the audio onto analog right. tape. There's there's a certain quality about that where you can you can't really you can't really get that any other way. You can, you can well, simulate like the, it, but yeah. Yeah. Well, like when you think about like the old color, pro the old processes with the, like you look at like Casablanca or Orson, like uh, Citizen Kane, mm -hmm. how they had to, you know, how he had to shoot it a certain way and how the camera was so big that they yeah. had to build it into the floor. It was a or lot what more I mean. work. A lot more work back then. Exactly, exactly. Just wow. Huh. Yeah. But um so I don't do you want to talk about uh uh COVID and the Channel Islands National Park or, or Yeah, sure. Um Yeah. Yeah, what 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 do you uh give me a give me a question. Okay, so Basically, at this point, uh, people are getting vaccines. Um, I myself have had one. I'm going to have another in a, a couple of weeks. Uh, and then a couple of weeks after that, we go back to normal, I guess, the normal world, whatever the new normal world is going to look like. Um, so how's the Channel Islands with that? Well, when you talk about the normal world, um, I don't, I don't know about that <laughs> in California. Um, I think, I think we're going to, they're, they're talking about keeping social distancing and masks for the rest of the year, at least maybe longer in California. Um, you know, maybe other States are different, but, uh, in the channel Islands specifically, uh, it was kind of heartbreaking. They, they shut them down a few, they shut down access to them a few times. Right. So, um, the, the ferry 
and the planes that run out there, uh, they were not operating because you can't, you know, you can't be on a boat with a bunch of other people and be social distancing or, or whatever. So yeah, they shut them down in April of last year, 2020, like March, March, April, and I think maybe through June. And then, then they shut them down again, uh, in December of 2020 for maybe a month or two. So if you had your own personal boat, you could, you could, you know, go out there and explore, but you, you weren't able to take the public transportation or the ferry that goes out there. So now, now that that's open, that's cool. It's not, it's not exactly back to normal. The, the ferries are limited capacity. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, like 50 or 75% full or something like that. So there, you know, you, there's more opportunity for social distancing. And then once you get onto the island, if you're around other people, um, you're supposed to have a mask on and, you know, stay six feet away or whatever. But once you get away from other people, people take their masks off and enjoy the, the sense of the, the smells of the, the park. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? Well, like. Yeah, I mean, okay, so they they shut down the islands, um, but I guess they opened it back. Um, So, like, what, I mean, how do you think the world is going to change because of COVID? um, Personally... I think, you know, like, like any, any disaster, the, the people in power view it as an opportunity to grab more power. Um, if you, you know, if you want to, if you want to disagree with me or if anybody wants to disagree with me, go look through history, you know, people, the people in power, not everybody in power, but you know, they're always looking for an opportunity to get more power. And, uh, I think that's not a great thing at the same time. Um, I think it, it, it brings up the questions of like, what is the government's role? You know, is the government's role to, to tell us, you know, what's safe? Yeah, that's what we pay our taxes to them for. Um, I don't know. To not get too political, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, what I do know, <laughs> for me personally, regardless yeah. of what's happening in Los Angeles and the cities, um, I'm, I'm really grateful that I have these outdoor areas to go and, um, you know, sometimes work in and then sometimes just go and explore. And, you know, if you go, if you go out into the woods and you get away from the city noise, you get away from the street noise, you're, you're, you're kind of in this timeless place, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, that's what it, for the most part, looked like and smelled like and sounded like. And in, in thousands of years from now, hopefully, that's for the most part what it'll look like, sound like, and smell like, and that gives me a lot of comfort, you know, to not get too worried about what's going on with the government and our country and the divide and whatever else, you know, that is is whatever else is selling newspapers and ads, <laughs> whatever headlines. Yeah, I mean, I guess like I have. Well, I have a. I like to tell people I have a disease, and my disease is I'm fascinated by governmental theory. Uh, you know, so yeah, 
So, I mean, I, I always kind of look at the classic, you know, the push-pull kind of thing. But, I mean, uh, you know, I, I've studied the Spanish flu for, I guess, season one of this podcast. Yeah. Um, and I think, I honestly believe, like, I honestly really believe that a lot of your medical professional types, a lot of your virologist types, uh, initially thought this thing was going to be the plague, right? Yeah. Because yeah. You, you don't know how bad it's going to get. Yeah. Uh, no, you know, for one, right? But also, like, you know, I think Dr. Fauci said it the other day. He said, like, at first we thought we thought this was going to be something bad. No, no, that's not what he said. He said, we. this is like the Spanish flu but we caught it early. And what he meant was it's not the Spanish flu, but he meant was it could have been, but we caught it early, right? We caught it before it could go stupid. And I think that's what a lot of people, at least professionals were worried about as far as governmental power. I mean, I talked to this lady in Singapore and she talked about how in her country, like, if you're not wearing a mask, they'll come and find you and arrest you, right? Wow. Now, I don't know too many Americans that are okay with that. Right? <laughs> no, definitely I don't not. think too many Americans would be okay with... Some, especially in California. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, maybe, but I don't know. That's, that's extreme, yeah, that's extreme government intervention. That's really extreme number yeah. one but also i think one of the things one of the i don't know bug feature where this is on the bug feature paradigm but the thing with covid is you die mainly in private i mean yeah okay i mean you can go back guilty as charged you can go back and listen to my podcast where i thought this was going to be much more serious than it probably is going to end up being. Yeah. Right. For sure. But, you know, you gotta, you gotta think as far as anybody knows, this thing was brand new. Right. So nobody really knew basically. Yeah. But you know, what's fascinating to me about this is, um, you know, they, they different <laughs> America's America's interesting because you have different states and different, you know, even even counties that have their own rules, uh, their own regulations for, you know, and as far as I know, places like West Virginia, they never shut down anything ever for the whole <laughs> the whole quarantine and then places like Florida and Idaho, section northern Idaho at least, and Texas, you know, like they've 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 done some regulations, but they've been very loose compared to places like New York or California. And it sounds like you're kind of stuck in the middle somewhere in in Georgia. Well, I think um, my governor is what you would call a. Uh, I'd say he's to the right. Okay, even mm -hmm. even on Republican issues. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I'd say he's pretty to the right. Um, there were things that my governor did 
um, in 2020 that you, if you knew anything about the virus and, and if you had access to the news media and you knew about the virus and, and you actually read up on it, like there were things that he did that you're like, okay, son, that's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I don't care who you vote for. That's not a cool idea. Especially if you're coming at it from the standpoint of, we don't know what this is going to be like in a year. Like, we don't know. He first, like, he very first said, he basically echoed the president, the ex-president, and said, like, oh, no, this is the flu or whatever. When, okay, the CDC is literally, literally in the same town as the capital, right? And the CDC mm-hmm. was saying, no, it's nothing like the flu. Stop it. <laughs> but I think my governor has gotten better, honestly. Yeah. But. Yeah, the, in- the interesting thing about America is there's not, you know, there's not like a overall. There's guidelines, but there's not overall regulations. You know, it's a state by state, county by county kind of thing. And it is. when you look at the data, at least I should say last time I looked at the data, it, the, the, the places that did not have very tough regulations did not have higher per population COVID outbreaks. They happen at different times, but it, it seemed whatever it is, you know, like 0.01% or whatever, the people that die from it, it kind of seems consistent regardless of what the regulations are which is which is kind of weird like and it might be it might be the the areas that don't have hard regulations are the more rural areas or the more rural states like west virginia texas idaho you know like there's not too many people and they're not that close to each other they're not really you know tight quarters whereas like new york and la have the hardest um the hardest regulations regulation but yeah. those people are literally living on top of each other you know well i know for a fact um i think i've said this to you my sister works at a major hospital mm-hmm. and a whole lot of people um so okay if you okay say like you don't live in my county right Say you don't live in my county, but for some reason you end up in in a hospital in my county. Okay, mm-hmm. if you die, even though even though okay, even though you don't work in my county and you don't live in my county, if you die in my county in the hospital, congratulations, you count as a COVID death in my county. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> you went so like my sister, right? Um, Georgia is Georgia is one of these states where so Metro Atlanta is like one of the I think it is actually the fastest growing place in the Americas, plural, two continents. Okay. So but all that growth is in Metro Atlanta. Right. Mm -hmm. So a huge part of my state is dying. Essentially is is just dying. Okay. 
right? So <laughs> if you're going to go to the hospital in my state, you're probably going to end up coming to Metro Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So... And also, like, so okay. the, the the numbers of the deaths aren't necessarily accurate to the to the areas. Well, right. And here's something else I learned from the Spanish flu. Okay, so the Spanish flu. Um, I said this earlier. The Spanish flu killed modern folks. Think the Spanish flu killed as many as half a billion people with a B, which is a hell of a lot of people. Yeah. Okay. Especially back Mo- then, there weren't as many people around. Exactly. Most of those people um, did not die, uh, did not have the grace and favor of dying of the flu on the death certificate. Um, those deaths were interpolated as flu deaths later by historians and by medical professionals, in some cases decades after the fact. Okay. Yeah. So the way I always say it is there's a two-year-old that lives down the road from me. When that two-year-old is older than my father, they're going to know how many people died of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Or, or, an, or an estimate. <laughs> or they're going to have a better handle on it. But you're right. One thing I do wonder, and I honestly wonder that because I don't know. I don't know why why it is there's supposed to be there's supposedly as many deaths in Florida as there are in California. Per capita. Per capita. Yeah. I would love to know why that is. I is it especially if it's for real reasons, especially if that's a real like an actual reason and not something else. Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately this disease is political. Yeah. And that's just unfortunate. It's been, it's, the disease itself isn't political, but it's been politicized. <laughs> the, the disease does not care who you vote for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the disease doesn't have an agenda. <laughs> but but that would be, as a hist- the historian in me is like, if that's a real fact, that would be fascinating to uncover. Like, why, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, why is that? Yeah. You know? I mean... Yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's like, you know, it's tricky to get real data. It's tricky to to get through everything. Well, exactly. And it's also tricky to, I mean, when you really look at all the, the symptomology of COVID, right? And also mm-hmm. you have like post-COVID stuff. Like, so you can, quote, get over COVID, but you still have problems that are serious yeah yeah you know so who knows um is there anything jeremy you want to tell the internet before we log off maybe for the final time who knows (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i mean my podcast that i've been working on for a while is called the teeth podcast and it is first-hand stories of people that have survived being attacked by wild animals. And uh, we get into a lot of the details and the stories are, even if you, you know, 
<laughs> even if you don't think you're ever going to get attacked by an animal, there's still very human stories with a lot of uh, uh, universal inspiration and hope that come out of them. And I've, I've learned a lot and I've been fascinated a lot by these stories and I'm real excited for everybody else to hear them. It's called the T. What's the thing real quick. What's the thing you've learned the most? Thing I've learned the most. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't really have a, like a prepared statement, but there's definitely people that are crazy and there's all different kinds of crazies. And I'm, I'm the kind of crazy that I love to be outside. I love to be, you know, in, in the wilderness and I think most people would would consider that crazy when I start telling my stories and it definitely makes me feel like I'm not alone. Like there's other people that love to be out there in the wilderness and despite the risks, despite the, you know, predators, <laughs> I don't know how much of an answer that is, but for me personally, it makes me feel less alone and less crazy talking to other people that yeah. are out there and have crazy stories. Well, that I, I tell you the thing I learned the most about, when I did my podcast where I was talking to people about their COVID experiences is how lucky, just, just how lucky I am. Mm Hello, everybody. This is Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager. That was a voice from the past. That was my voice from the past, actually. And that was Jeremy Carberry, who is a river guide at the Channel Islands National Park off the coast of, I guess, Los Angeles, California. We did that podcast right at a month ago. Um, I had a long time in releasing it because I've had so much other stuff uh, going on uh, in addition to a veritable backlog of podcasts which, you know, will come out um, the greater majority of them will actually come out but um, I want to say that even though I guess I have an announcement and my announcement is I'm I'm fully vaccinated, um, but the vaccine hadn't kicked in yet. Uh, you got to wait two weeks um, for the vaccine to kick in all the way, but hey. Anyway, so um, I'm still going to be talking to people who want to talk to me about, about COVID, and I'm certainly going to talk to people about other things as well. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say hey and all that and also that um this podcast is going to continue i was just a little busy but uh yeah this podcast is going to continue i know i i started it as uh spanish flu and covid19 believe it or not i am actually researching and recording uh season three of the history voyager which is going to be the tulip bubble um, but I'm going to keep doing these, uh, conversations with people because I, I mean, I think they're so interesting. Um, and I, I certainly hope you do too. Uh, the numbers indicate that you do. Um, 
the the downloading numbers, uh, which I don't actually know the full story on, but from what I can tell, um, you guys think this is interesting as well. So I'm I'm gonna keep doing it. Um, anyway, I'm having a great day, and I hope you are too. And uh, hope this finds you well and healthy. And and you know, if you don't want to get the vaccine, uh, some of you can't. I understand a lot of people can't either because of uh, religion or because of um, immunocompromises or whatever. Uh, but of those of you who can get the vaccine, p- please get it. And those of you who can't or don't uh, care not to, uh, please wear a mask. Uh, you know, the life you save may be your very own, and you might save the lives of other people, the lives, maybe the lives of somebody that, that you don't know. Uh, remember, everybody is special to somebody. That's what COVID, that's what talking to all these people has, has taught me, or not taught me, but illustrated uh, quite poignantly in a lot of cases that everybody is special to somebody. And, and please don't take away the center of somebody's universe is all I want to say to you. Um, all right, people. Um, I'm going to go and enjoy this podcast. Uh, hope you enjoyed it rather. I'm tacking this on at the end rather than the beginning. Um, all righty. Have a good day, and like I've already said, I'm having a great day, and I hope you are too. Okay, bye-bye.